Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we are at podcast number 19 in our series on the second half of world history. In podcast number 18, we reviewed the economic economic dire situation that Russia found itself in as it continued to attempt to fight on the side of Great Britain and France during the, the First World War, known, of course, only at that time as the Great War. But we looked also at the fact that Russia pulled out of the war as it started its own internal political revolution. We then looked at the post-war problems and the political experiments of the 1920s. We reviewed such things as the inconsistencies in the Paris treaties and the economic troubles, and some ways that some countries attempted to work around that, specifically with the Germans and the new, now referred to as Soviet people, for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic with the Rapallo Agreement. We then looked also at the rise of fascism in Italy, and we ended with a beginning of our discussion of Germany in the interwar period, attempting to try to govern itself under the Weimar government. We looked specifically, and I, I certainly wanted to point out, which is the reason I'm emphasizing again, that the constitution of the German Weimar government allowed for any party interest to have a proportional representation. The constitution also allowed the president or the chancellor of Germany to assume all power in government in times of emergency. Looked at another way, yes, the Weimar government, the constitution, did allow for a temporary dictatorship. Please know, remember again, that Adolf Hitler had nothing to do with the writing of the Weimar Constitution, but he is going to capitalize on every little piece of writing in between the lines, as he'll interpret it, of the Weimar Constitution as he rises to power. So in this podcast, number 19, we're going to continue to look at the situation within the Weimar government and in post-World War I Germany to see how somebody like an Adolf Hitler could unfortunately rise to have so much power and authority. The key point as we begin this 19th podcast is that with the constitution allowing for any political party interest to have proportional representation, while that on the surface may seem to ameliorate any kind of issues, negative issues that might be rising where people could express themselves through their own political party affiliation, and there was over 40 different political parties in 1920s Germany, 
Sadly, it didn't stop civilian violence against the government becoming more and more common. People were starving in Germany. They were beyond economic dire straits, as mentioned before. So what we're going to see here is we're going to look at, first off in this podcast, is the collapse, essentially, of the German economy. Now, please know in this particular podcast that I'm not going to be attempting to explain the collapse of the German economy through some academic theorist's interpretation. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but rather, I think a more poignant and personal way to really attempt to explain just what was happening in 1920s Germany is best told by an individual who physically had to live through it. And the individual whose words I'll be reading from is, a, is her name is Irmgard A. Hunt. So her first name, I-R-M-G-A-R-D, and then her middle initial, A, and then her last name, Hunt, common spelling, H-U-N-T. She tells of what her childhood was like in a book that she wrote called On Hitler's Mountain, Overcoming the Legacy of a Nazi Childhood. And again, again, that name is On Hitler's Mountain. Listeners, I am getting chills right now. I feel my whiskers rising, not that I have a beard or a mustache, but I feel my hair is raising on the back of my neck and on my face. When before I even get to her book, just as I'm beginning to recall what is in her book, it is so telling, so moving that I'm not ashamed to say I was not about to quote from her book in my classroom simply because, quote unquote, I read it in a book. Some of what she wrote that I will share with you is so moving that I would not have trusted repeating it without her looking in my eyes and telling me that that was the truth. So this is an author, not from a book that I just, of a book that I just happened to pick up at a bookstore. This was a book that was recommended to me that I had the opportunity to meet with the author, to ask her, yes, some pointed questions before I was going to trust what I was, was in that book, that I would read it to my students or to my listeners. Should we begin, and again, I'm, when I say I'm going to read from her book, as I have with others, it's not a lot of reading, but just some points that, it's, that I can more concisely, and in some cases more believably, be able to try to drive home the certain points that I want to make through her words rather than my own attempt at explanation. What I'm looking at first and foremost is just how inflation skyrocketed out of control that was leading to the collapse of the German economy. Remember again that inflation is too many dollars facing too few goods. So in this sense, what we're looking at when we're look, talking about a sense of inflation in post-World War Germany looked like this. Quote, beginning on page 21 of her book, Quote, when she received her week's pay in the morning, she, and she's referring to her mother, she had to wait until her lunch break to run with her wad of paper money to the nearest bakery. But by that time, the Reichsmark, 
the German currency of the time, had fallen so far that she could not buy a single loaf of bread with her six days' wages. The large rectangular bills were stamped with a staggering number of zeros. Mother could not even puzzle out the denomination. Millions? Billions? More? By November 15, 1923, the high mark of the inflation, a single United States dollar equaled 4.2 billion Reichsmark. On days when mother was not able to buy bread, she searched through the garbage cans outside wealthy people's homes for potato peels and other scraps. During the worst of times, my grandmother tied a small blue and white freckled enamel pot with strings around her waist and hid it beneath her long dark skirt so that she could fill it with kitchen scraps and leftovers from the dining rooms of the houses where she ironed laundry. Her family would eagerly wait for her to come home and put the meager offering on the table. Neither woman would ever forget the humiliation of those days. And while my grandmother never talked about these hardships, much of her bitterness must have stemmed from that time. And again, that's pages 21 and 22 of Ermgard Hunt's book on Hitler's Mountain. A couple of points that I'd like to stress there. Number one, in terms of when she's referring to those large rectangular bills, I bring in original Reichsmarks that I have in my possession to my students. These are not copies. They're not... Uh, imitations or fakes they are the they are the real bills and i show them to my students just to be able so that they could see the staggering numbers of zeros on these bills when mrs hunt refers to the high point of inflation 4.2 billion 4.1 billion to 1 us dollar and that that's an economic evaluation of the currency at the time of inflation at the time to put another way, that, that is basically an economic way of saying that the economy was collapsed when an entire week's wages might not have be able to purchase a single loaf of bread. When we're also looking at the fact that her mother or grandmother, they used to go through the garbage can for scraps. Later on in the book, Ermgard Hunt talks about a special, a truly special Christmas morning during these economic hard times, when Ermgard and her sister came down the stairs fully knowing that there wasn't gonna be anything under any Christmas tree because there simply wasn't the money for it. And if there was the money, most likely there would be nothing to purchase. However, she came down that morning and there was a meager Christmas tree that they had attempted to decorate overnight. She remembers being able to sit and under the tree, or at least next to it, and pull her knees up to her, close to her chest, just looking at it, but knowing again there would be no Christmas presents once again. And she remembered her mother and father giving her a Christmas present to her surprise and her sister. And the gift that she was given, she could not grab it fast enough. But yet at the same token, she was also old enough and had the maturity, probably long before it was due, to immediately look to her mom and dad and her sister and realize she has to share it. But for that particular Christmas morning, 
Ermgard Hunt was able to enjoy her Christmas present all by herself and didn't have to share any of it. And the Christmas present was an orange, a piece of fruit. What made it special was not the piece of fruit because they had fruit as often as they could possibly get it, which wasn't much, but anything that they did have always had to be shared. What made this present special was that she could enjoy the entire orange by herself and for at least a few moments not feel unbelievable hunger pangs constantly pulling at her. So again, this is a very vivid description of just how bad the German economy was. Another account in Ermgard Hunt's book that I've also, that she is, she is repeating heard from somebody else, but I've also read the story independently, is that bakery once again, but it, it doesn't have to be any one particular bakery. It's any one that was open during the Weimar days in post-World War I Germany, when there was a long line of people that were standing, standing in line in order to get into a bakery, hoping to find something available for sale and hoping to have enough money. And the line was long, it was tediously slow. And at one point, Ermgard's mother was noticing that the woman in front of her was beginning to start fidgeting, was beginning to start getting antsy. And the woman turned, turned to Ermgard's mother and said, I am so sorry to ask you this, but I need to run to a public restroom. Would you please watch my money for me as I cannot carry it with me? And Ermgard Hunt's mother reluctantly agreed. But by watching the money, what that meant is that Mrs. Hunt's mother had to hold on to her wicker basket full of bills and with her foot, push the woman's wicker basket full of bills forward. She was doing this for a few minutes when there was a commotion to her right. And all of a sudden, many men were running towards the line and knocked many of the women down. And after these men ran off, these women were screaming and finally quieted down. Nobody was injured from any of the counts that I read. But they got up and immediately started weeping, started crying, realizing that they had been robbed. What's unbelievable, though, is that none of the women lost any money. It's the wicker baskets and other containers that were stolen from the woman. The money was right in front of them on the ground. The money was worthless, but the baskets and bins and bags to hold the money was not worthless. Why? Because Germany by this point was simply resorting to a barter system. On the surface, it may seem like big deal. They resort to a barter system. But the fact of the matter is that when an economy, when a population begins to start passing on using the money and resorts to under the table trading or black market trading that further erodes the economic system. So it is in this economic backdrop that we talk about the rise of a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, born April 30th, excuse me, April 20th, 
1889, lived sadly for 56 days, 56 years and 10 days until he committed suicide on April 30th, 1945. So again, and I apologize for my swapping of those dates there. He was born April 20th, 1889, died April 30th, 1945. So as I begin to talk about Hitler, as I also will do in my classroom, please and I ask you to make sure that you're listening to this podcast all the way through, just in this sense, and I won't finish about talking about Hitler and Germany, of course, in this podcast, as we only have about 15 minutes left. But please know that I in no way have any kind of secret admiration in any way or in any form for Adolf Hitler. However, the way I'm going to describe him in some cases, especially if you're not listening attentively, or in the case of I was in a classroom, why I don't like my classroom door open or students coming in late, is I don't want somebody to ha hear half of a conversation, lecture, or discussion and think otherwise about the true reputation of this brutal and ruthless dictator and worthless human being by the name of Adolf Hitler. But the fact of the matter is, that the average person learns about Adolf Hitler in Germany when World War II starts. By that point, though, stopping that man was way too late, as millions and millions of people would sadly find out. I talk about the rise of the ruthless dictator so that perhaps we can keep, we, the general public in the 21st century, can keep our eye out for individuals who have similar backgrounds or are doing things in their teen or early 20s years in a particular country who attempts to rise to power, with social media, it's a lot easier for us to track down individuals who maybe have sinister intentions and are hoping that nobody is paying attention. We cannot afford to do that. When individuals are attempting to try to claim office, whether it be the office of the chancellery, a presidency, the office of prime minister, whatever it might be, we need to look into the younger years of these individuals because their childhood and early adulthood oftentimes can point to the type of politician that they seek to aspire to. So with Adolf Hitler, first off, he is not the only child that was simply born to Clara and his father, Eloise. He was the fourth born child, but he was the fourth one that was not a stillborn or did not die immediately after birth. Clara was also not Eloise's first wife. She was his third. The question, though, was who was his father's father? In other words, who was Adolf Hitler's paternal grandfather? While true that his father was born out of wedlock and abandoned by both of his parents when they were very young, when he was very young, rumor had it that his grandfather, Adolf Hitler's grandfather, was Jewish. It was this question, more of a stigma than a question, that his father had to live with, and his son, Adolf, obsessed over. Only a Jew, Adolf Hitler thought, would have a child out of wedlock. And to prove that his thinking, 
to how he carried his thinking to fruition. That's how his own mother Clara became Aloysius' third wife, hence the inconspicuous laws in Nuremberg that no Aryan woman could be a housekeeper or a maid if she was under 45 years old. This rather uncommon knowledge about the early age, the early life, and the familial side of Adolf Hitler is discussed extensively in a book by, the, by an author by the name of George Victor in his book called Hitler, The Pathology of Evil. George Victor and other books that I have read over the years on Adolf Hitler also agrees with the many that have discussed the fact that it's not to say that Adolf Hitler had a normal childhood. And, and it's arguable that he really didn't. But we begin, as I said earlier, the fact that he was born, the, the first one, fourth in number, but the first one that was not born is still born to Clara and Eloise or did not die immediately after birth. What happened is as Adolf aged, as he went from infancy into his toddlerhood and beyond, I cannot imagine, and again, for readers that might not have started out with my very, very first podcast or do not know me at all, I have three children of my own. I am the last of eight children. I cannot imagine what it would be like when I had the beyond awesome blessed opportunity to be on my, at my wife's side for the birth of our three children, my two sons and my daughter. I can't imagine what that would be like for your wife to give birth and realize the baby's not crying or even moving because the baby's dead. I can't fathom that. I, I don't know what, what that torture would be like. You know, of course, either for the mother or the father. Or to have what you think is a healthy child, only to bring the child home and find that he or she died shortly after getting home from the, from the care center or the hospital. So, yes, by the time Hitler is born, after three children either were stillborn or died immediately after birth, Clara, because Hitler's Adolf is surviving, Clara thought the child could do no wrong and was the true textbook helicopter mother. Can you blame her? This is now my fourth child, but the first one to actually make it home from the hospital for several days and then weeks and then months. So in Clara's eyes, Adolf Hitler, Adolf, the son, rose and set in him. That's the way she saw it to the point that Adolf could do no wrong in Clara's eyes. And you might be sitting there as you're listening thinking, okay, well, that's not all that, you know, uh, rare that you have helicopter parents and parents that think that their kids walk on water and can do no wrong. But I haven't finished yet. That was just Adolf's mom. I didn't say anything about his dad yet because his dad was the polar opposite. Perhaps because Aloise had two wives before Clara, much less had three children born to, to Clara and him, who either died immediately or shortly after, that Aloise had the opposite reception of Adolf. 
there by and large was no love shown towards Adolph. We don't know why Eloise was that way. Was it because no love was shown to him by his own parents or the fact that he was just simply stung too many times with having three children born before Adolf and therefore was just afraid to show love, afraid to show any kind of expression? We don't know. But in Eloise's eyes, Adolf could do no right. Now do you begin to see a very, very dangerous pattern there. A mom who says that her son can do no wrong and a dad who says that his son can do nothing right. Hence the reason why there was a lot of physical violence between Eloise and Adolf throughout his childhood and early teen years. This, again, as I say, is the reason why we have that as Adolf grows in this dichotomy of parenthood between a mother who shows undisciplined love and a father who shows undisciplined scorn. It's in this world of polar opposites that this young Adolf is trying to grow in. Adolf's father, Eloise, was a government worker and a man of considerable stature within the Austrian government. Remember again, Hitler is born in Austria. He is not born in Germany as is mythically believed. His father, which is not uncommon, wanted his own son to follow him into government work. Because of course of the animosity between the two, Adolf wanted nothing to do with his father. And that especially meant going in any kind of a career that resembled that of the work that his father did. Rather, Hitler liked to do his own thing. He wasn't the best student. He had trouble at times listening to direction, but he also tended to show an artistic side in his early childhood years, something that, of course, his mother beyond supported. So it was no surprise that Hitler eventually, in his teenage years, attempted to try to apply to the art school in Vienna, Austria. His application, his first of two applications, was initially reviewed and then ultimately denied. They did not give a reason for the denial of Adolf Hitler's application for admission to the art school, to the art program, just simply that he was denied. Because of that, Hitler saved his money and continued to work on his different parts of the application and applied to the same art school one year later. Like his first application, it was reviewed and not immediately rejected, but something was simply off with his application, according to the admissions committee. Now, when I say off, what I mean is that the parts of the application were very straightforward and were accepted. But part of the application also required the applicants to submit pieces of art, different examples of the type of paintings and drawings, stencil work that the applicant was capable of. The fact of the matter is that the admissions committee was fairly impressed 
with Adolf Hitler's attention to detail. He clearly knew how to use color and shading, knew the difference that appeared between hues and other aspects of color and shades. But again, something was simply off. We don't have any exact example of something that Adolf Hitler had specifically painted, but the effects were something to the nature of this. He painted, for example, and he would go on to paint things like a scene of a park, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, a park, you know, where kids could run around and play and adults could have picnics with families. And Adolf Hitler could paint that. And he could paint the trees with incredible detail and could paint, a, for example, a blanket out with a picnic basket on it and a bottle of wine and food and a ball going through the air thrown by somebody and maybe a dog chasing it. But with all these interesting scenes that Adolf Hitler painted, something was glaringly missing and therefore made the pictures somewhat off. And the part that was missing was the human being. Adolf Hitler never painted people. He didn't paint anything that alluded to a human presence. Now, over the years, as I've lectured about Adolf Hitler, I have been told by quite a few artists that that is not somewhat all that surprising. Painting people is extremely difficult. The reason being is because we, the viewers, tend to be the most critical of any kind of human imitation, whether it be a drawing, a statue, a painting, etc. So to a certain extent, it's not surprising that Adolf Hitler never attempted to paint human beings. But then why paint an entire scene where clearly humans would be present, but glaringly were not? So with two rejections to the Viennese art school, what's next for Adolf Hitler? Aha, this is when he rises to power in Germany. Oh no, that's many years off because the art school recommended that this young man apply to the School of Engineering. And when we begin the next episode, we'll look at his one and only application to the School of Engineering. Thanks for listening.